0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn
1: more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming
3: up on today's program. The pending reorganization of our city government will be designed to open wide The doors of City Hall to all Atlantans and to make our city government more responsive to people needs and people problems.
2: As Atlanta elects its next mayor, we'll present conversation, conversations about the city's first black mayor and his vision for Atlanta, Maynard Jackson. That's coming up. Plus, it's called the Great Resignation. Just why are folks quitting their jobs and in record numbers. Now coming up, this very special edition of Closer Look as we revisit conversations about the legacy of Atlanta's first black mayor, Maynard Jackson. Stay with us. Closer Look continues in just a moment. Support
0: for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta,
2: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We know of the Great Depression, the Great Recession, and now there's the Great Resignation. What is it and why is it happening? Let's, let's ask Ian Shmuti, Associate Professor, Department of Economics in the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. Professor, welcome to the program.
3: Uh, Thank you. It's great to to be with you.
2: Let's begin here because, Professor, I I like numbers. I do love numbers. And I remember reading a CNBC story that began this way. Quote, Americans are leaving their jobs in droves. In August, 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs. Close quote. Professor, this has been a trend of
3: some time since last year. What do you make of this? Um, Well, so that's right. Uh, This has been a trend, I think, uh, in particular, starting around... uh, the end of last year, the the level of quits started to get back to the rates that it was prior to the the pandemic. Of course, before the pandemic, uh, we were already experiencing tight labor markets and quit rates were getting relatively high, certainly relative to the the Great Recession period where labor markets were pretty sluggish. Um, But now, uh, since the spring, um, the number of quits has become truly high, certainly levels we haven't seen. Uh, in, in the uh, data that are recorded from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And so, in this recent month, uh, the records were once again at a record level um, where we got around four, uh, over four million people quitting uh, during the month of September, a uh, rate of about 3%.
2: And I read even back then, this trend was led by folks who had previously worked in food and retail industries.
3: Yes, that's right, and that's that's the case right now as well. Quit rates are particularly elevated in uh, the leisure and hospitality sectors, uh, and also in retail trade. You know, so people who are working in in stores, uh, for for instance.
2: Is this a sign of folks going into other industries, starting their own businesses, moving to, I don't know, Calcutta? I don't know what 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 are folks doing? <laughs> folks quitting their jobs? Yeah. What are they doing?
3: <laughs> I mean, I, I I think so. Two things on this one. One is that I, you know, I think it's it's all of the above. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I want to couch this uh, in, first by saying, you know, the, we do have good data in general on sort of the movements of individuals between different different industries. Right now, um, this great resignation period is so fresh. We don't have really wonderful information on what exactly the destinations are for these individuals. But we do know um, that early retirements have been up. Um, So large number of people have been just withdrawing from the labor force altogether, um, either to go back to school, um, to retire, or just to sit and wait and see if a a different, more enticing uh, opportunity pops up. Uh, But it's interesting that you mentioned uh, starting businesses uh, because uh, new business starts have been up dramatically Mm -hmm. Um, since uh, the the end of the really uh, the, the shutdown period of the the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, so we're up fifty percent in Georgia, for instance, in terms of new business starts, and many of those are in these industries that people are leaving right now.
2: But so the pandemic has been a, at the core a, a big reason why folks are in this this great resignation. When you look at other now, typically though, at pre-pandemic, uh, what did we see? Did we see folks starting businesses? Did we see folks? Taking early retirements—what led to that, or was it just part of what happens in in our in our life cycles here in this
3: country? Well, of course, I mean, certainly, you know, in in any given month, you know, in a, a pre-pandemic labor market, people will be retiring, um, and and some of these trends have been present. Um, so, in particular. Um, The level of labor force participation overall has been declining over the the, the last uh, couple of decades, several decades for for male workers in particular. Um, Retirement ages uh, have been been falling somewhat, or certainly Mm -hmm. the, the likelihood of working during retirement has been declining. And so in some sense, you can see what's going on as an acceleration of those trends. And likewise, people would always quit. quits fell considerably during during the pandemic. And so part of what's going on is just a there there are a glut of people who were unhappy with what they were doing but felt stuck during that pandemic period. And then um, realize so that's part of it.
2: And then realize, you know what? I can do bad by myself. I can be unhappy by myself and go do something else. Let me ask you this. Any, is there any data out there that indicates what particular population are we looking at? We talked about retirees, so we get that. But what about maybe Gen Xers or, or Millennials or Generation Z? Did we, are we seeing any trends with those groups?
3: Yeah, I've seen some um, some, some reports indicating. So certainly uh, a lot of this quit behavior and certainly the, the decline in labor force participation, the part that that, Uh, is of most concern is sort of among what we would call prime age workers, people between the ages of 25 when they're finished with schooling and say 55 before they start to think about retirement. Mm -hmm. Um, So so those numbers are down as well. And there are also some some smaller studies um, out indicating that Uh, Younger workers in particular have been quitting quite a bit. And of course, that's a more mobile workforce, Mm -hmm. uh, even during normal times.
2: And while we know it's great for folks to to step out on faith and start their own businesses or, you know what, new chapters are great. I always say that. But in this instance, there are some there's a there's a there's a negative because there are folks that are looking to hire people. And of course, now we can have a whole another conversation then about well, if you don't want folks leaving the restaurant industry, maybe you should pay them a little bit more. That's a whole another conversation, Professor. I'm not going to get you in on that one. But the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry are they suffering here the most? Is that what you're saying? And the retail?
3: Um, I mean, in in terms of suffering, uh, you, you know, I I don't know, and I'm certainly happy to to discuss the wage issue if you if you if you want to. Um, That's a whole another hour, Professor. <laughs> One thing, one thing we do, uh, another interesting trend in the data is that uh, corporate profits are up about 14 percent, you know, wages are up 7 percent, corporate profits are up about 14 percent. So, you know, some people are doing okay out of this. Um, And again, I have great data right now on the number of businesses that are actually shutting down. I think what we're seeing certainly quite a bit of is businesses figuring out how to make do mm-hmm. uh, with, with a, a potentially smaller workforce. Uh, also, interestingly, while the number of quits has risen a lot, the total number of workers leaving their jobs has fallen. And so what's going on is that companies are figuring out ways to retain their existing workers. And so while it is true that to grow your workforce, you're going to have to probably Do something special to get more workers in the door, whether it be raise wages or something else. Uh, But companies do seem to be figuring out ways to, 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 to get by.
2: Well, ways to get people into the doors, but also retention. Because you've already mm-hmm. lo- companies have already lost some folks, so then they've got to think of ways to to increase their to make sure they they keep folks. And it could be salaries, it could be culture. I mean, it, this pandemic has really highlighted a, a lot of issues for folks. So businesses out there, what are you what are you suggesting that they do? I mean, is it something simple as having, you know, and I'm just suggesting this. Don't say Rose Scott said you got to give me a bonus to come work for you, but maybe you know, signing bonuses, maybe some incentives to get folks in the door. That never, it, it does help.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to go back just a little bit. I don't want to certainly be seen as making light of the difficulties sure. I think, that, that businesses are having in, in retaining and, and finding people to, to staff up their businesses. You know, where I live here in Athens, we have many, many small restaurateurs, business owners, and I know that they're having trouble figuring out a way to to, to get it together. Um, And the conversations that I I have with those people when I do, you know, is to think about, you know, if you can't pay somebody a higher wage constantly, you know, then things like what you're talking about, if you can't do a bonus, figuring out ways to make the the job more appealing, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Anything you can do to, to to do that, I think, is what 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 companies are are, are going to have to do and what they do appear to be doing. Uh, we, we, like I said, wages are coming up um, at the moment. And finally,
2: Professor, as we begin to wrap up, then when do we start to see the, the trend go the other way? When will we see this record number of Americans quitting their jobs, I guess, sort of cease or is that going to be continuing through 2022? That can't be good uh, for the
3: workforce development overall. I mean, there's a certain amount of quitting, you know, there's a certain amount of dynamism. So what, you know, when you see people quitting, you can see two things. You can see people leaving correct kind of productive employment relationships, or you can see people seeking out better opportunities for themselves and better and better job matches. Um, And I see some combination of both of those things. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of trends for the future, um, any thoughts I would have had on that have kind of gone gone down now that we've got this Omicron variant yeah. uh, coming. Because I do think pandemic is the number one factor behind all of this.
2: We're going to have to bring you back at the beginning of the year to get your uh, your your outlook. And I, I love to talk to analysts about an outlook for an entire year, because they never get it right. And that's OK. <laughs> Professor Ian <laughs> Shamuti, Associate Professor, Department of Economics in the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. Professor, thank you so much for this conversation. We're going to bring you back because we'll continue to follow this. Thank you. Thank you. This is a special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Never had I met someone so bold, so determined to succeed, so committed to public service. Maynard was a fearless, courageous, audacious leader. For me, Maynard was a lion, a lion of a man, a man for all seasons, a model for leadership in a complicated, complex world.
3: I loved every talk I ever had with him. I loved every argument I ever had with him. I loved him when he was reprimanding me and when he was praising me. I loved him because his heart was good.
2: It's the heart afraid of trying that never learns to dance. It's the dream afraid of waking that never takes a chance. It's the one afraid of being taken that never learns to give. It's the soul that's afraid of dying that never learns to live.
4: Maynard learned to dance.
2: He could dance to any music. To those who wanted to slow drag into pass. Maynard taught him how to boogie into the future. June 28, 2003, the funeral service for Maynard Holbrook Jackson, Jr. He would be mayor three times. You heard in that clip then Mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, also former President Bill Clinton, and of course, the Reverend Joseph Lowry. Now, they were just among a who's who of notables that day. Inside Atlanta Civic Center, an enormous photo of Jackson towered over the choir. Speaker after speaker praised the man who became Atlanta's youngest mayor in 1973. Maynard Jackson was 35 years old when he talked about what Atlanta should and could become. We must see
0: the other Atlanta, the one across the tracks, the inner city one, the Atlanta in the valleys and the
4: shadows Just beyond the first expressway exits, one passes when leaving downtown.
2: And being mayor wouldn't be easy. Barely a month after Jackson's election, well, the recession hit. It was the beginning of a 16 month long recession that gripped the nation, brought on by gas shortages, which led to rising inflation. And then, when that happens, of course, unemployment went up. And the stock market, well, it plummeted. So making history as Atlanta's first black mayor was celebrated, but then it was time to work. So on this edition of Closer Look, we examine Maynard Jackson's legacy and his economic vision for Atlanta. We'll go behind the scenes of the documentary Maynard. But we start with former first lady of Atlanta and his wife, Valerie Jackson.
4: This musical tribute is Valerie's love song to Maynard. It's a wonderful ballad entitled My One and Only Love.
2: One W.A.B.E. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm real Scott. That is the Reverend Dwight Andrews on saxophone. Gary Motley on piano during funeral services for Maynard Jackson. That was June 28th, 2003. You know, earlier this year, we had a conversation with Valerie Jackson for our ATL 68 series. We talked about the connection of Maynard Jackson and Dr. King. And here's that conversation. Thank you very much, uh,
1: Rose. I've been looking forward to being here.
2: You know, you're usually on
1: the other side of this. I know. Of interviewing <laughs> folks. I was thinking about that on the way in. I said, you know, it's it's less uh, nervous being on the other side. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I like this side of the, of the microphone.
2: Um, Maynard Jackson, give me a word. Can you think of one word to just describe him as he relates to you? Hmm. Your Maynard.
1: My Maynard was magnificent. Mm-hmm. That's a word that that means a lot of things, but he was magnificent in that he was bigger than life in terms of his expectations and his goals and his vision. Um, he was magnificent because he was exceptional, um, not a typical politician, because I always thought of Maynard as a statesman, mm-hmm. Which is different from a politician. A politician is one who'll maybe go with the flow and follow the, you know, maybe what the public trend might be as opposed to making a wise decision based on fact, experience, and wisdom. Um, so he was magnificent to me.
2: You know, Valerie, I've had so many conversations about Maynard Jackson from the political and civil rights angle. What can you tell me about him that many, maybe folks may not know about him? <laughs> I know there's some things you don't keep to yourself. We don't want to get all up in your business.
1: <laughs> no, well, he he was. <clears throat> we were both rather romantic. That was one of our goals. Really, was to stay romantically involved, and so he would write me poetry, as I would do him, and he would surprise me with little things. And what I think, what I think made it special was that he knew he didn't have to do something that was super. Big, you know, mm-hmm. to impress me, he could bring me a tiny little Mr. Goodbar, a miniature Mr. Goodbar, and put it on my pillow because he knew that Mr. Goodbar was my favorite candy.
2: Now you know, there's a guy out there thinking, "What can I do? <laughs> I'm follow a follower, Mayor Jackson." That's <laughs> why
1: I'm sharing this with you, okay? Because I want to let the fellows out there know that he was, yes, he was romantic. He wrote me a, a ten uh, verse sonnet. Uh, just before he passed on our 25th anniversary, and and I want young men to know that he just didn't wake up being romantic. I had to help him along, so you got to <laughs> let your women kind of pull you along and kind of let you know what they like, and then you can learn how to, to uh, make them happy. But um, aside from that uh, being, you know, that romantic part in our relationship, which which I think has kind of lost a little luster these days. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think we give love the attention that it deserves. And um, I used to <laughs> ironically, I saw something on Blackish last night about whether or not the woman should prepare the plate for the mm-hmm. man at dinner. Mm-hmm. As much of an avant-garde woman as I am, you know, being the first in many areas and so forth, I prepared Maynard's plate for him every night. Because that was the least that I could do when he came home from being beat up mm. on by 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 other politicians and by people that didn't understand what he was trying to do, mm-hmm. and sometimes this was even our own black people who were giving him a hard time so i'm i I think um, we need to let our men and our women, our partners. Mm-hmm understand that we appreciate them, because I think more than being loved, I think people want to be respected and needed,
2: mm-hmm. needed. So true. This may sound like a cliche, but when you research Maynard's history, his family's history, one just could easily come up and say, you know what, he was born to be a leader. Absolutely. I mean, he's the grandson of a civil rights, civil rights giant like John Wesley Dobbs, who founded the Georgia Voters League. Did he ever talk about, that? was there any pressure, or was, he, was leadership just part of who he was? I don't think Maynard
1: saw it as pressure. I think he saw it as his responsibility, mm-hmm. because he was a servant leader. He was raised up by a minister and a woman of education. Mm-hmm. You know, his mother was a professor of French at Spelman and others. And so he grew up realizing that we were here to serve each other, Um John Wesley Dobbs was not only Grandmaster of the Prince Hall of Mason until his death, but he co-founded the Atlanta Negro Voters League, as I think you mentioned, mm-hmm. and, and registered up 20,000 African-American voters in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then he used those voters to persuade Mayor William B. Hartsfield to integrate Atlanta's police force in 1948 and to install gaslights along Auburn Avenue. Mm-hmm. Now, they were already in the white neighborhoods, mm-hmm. gaslights, okay. He pledged 10,000 votes to Mayor Hartsfield if if Mayor Hartsfield would commit to integrating the police force and to installing those gaslights. Now, that's how Maynard learned about working with uh, other components and, and, and seeing what each could bring to the table. Um, I might add, though, that the black policemen weren't allowed to arrest white Mm -hmm. people, and they had to change their uniforms at the Butler Street YMCA. They were not allowed to change in the police precincts. But, one
2: step at a time. Mm -hmm. So, um... Maynard, he's he's seen all this as a young man, as as a teen, really, because he lost his father as a teenager. At 15. So John Wesley Dobbs became not only a father figure, even though it was his grandfather, but he's starting to see the political blueprint Absolutely. or the social justice blueprint in his grandfather. Absolutely.
1: Um, his, uh, creating the voters leagues and, and registering these voters and um, being willing to stand up and fight for a cause, regardless of... You know, he said, I'd rather wear a worn coat than to buy a new one at a store that won't let me uh, eat at their counter. Um, So John Wesley Dobbs was a very strong influence on him because the big... Uh, impact that he himself had in the city. You know, John Wesley Dobbs was called the mayor of Sweet Auburn mm-hmm. Avenue. How prophetic that his grandson would one day really be the mayor and never held
2: never held any elected office. No, he office. never held yeah. any
1: ele- uh, uh grandfather Dobbs never held mm-hmm. an elected office. Um, but also, a lot of people know about the influence that John Wesley Dobbs had on Maynard. But Maynard's father himself had a very big impact on Maynard. And I I say this because, like I said, I don't think many people really uh, know Maynard Holbrook Sr., know his history. Um, He was um, teaching Maynard about politics and the politics of inclusion because he was the first black to run for elected office in Dallas, Texas, because he originally, he was uh, born in mm-hmm. Dallas, Texas. Mo- they moved here to Atlanta when he was seven. But his father was the first black to run for elected office and to win in Dallas, Texas. Um, he carried on the tradition of preaching and politics in spite of deaths, death mm-hmm. threats to him and, mm-hmm. and Grandma Marini, as Maynard and I and uh, and his family has received throughout all three of Maynard's uh, ex- administrations, I might add. Um, I'll never forget my daughter writing an essay to Harvard saying that most kids had fire drills. We had bomb drills in our house.
2: As a family, because of the death yes, threats. We had,
1: yes, we got bomb threats and whatnot, and so we had to do little bomb <laughs> uh, drills, but... Getting back to uh, Daddy Maynard, which is what they called uh, Maynard Sr., he was editor of the Dallas Express, which was the black newspaper there. He served as executive secretary of the Negro Chamber of Mm -hmm. Commerce in Dallas. He co-founded the Dallas Progressive Voters League in 1936, which was to register African-American voters. And when he moved to Atlanta, he became pastor of Friendship Baptist Church and became a community leader organizing uh, his church members to build housing for the s- children that lived in the slum areas around Friendship Baptist Church. He said, how can we as a church look out into our backyard and see these young babies, you know, living in these conditions? And today we have w- what's known as Friendship Towers, mm-hmm. it used to be, but that was the beginning of, of residential uh, uh, building in Atlanta over in the west side. So it's
2: it's it's easy to see how and why Maynard Jackson progressed the way he did. He enters Morehouse at the age of 15. Dr. King enters Morehouse at the age of 15. I want to talk about that connection because often when we talk about civil rights and political giants here in Atlanta, obviously you start with Dr. King. You hear about the Andy Youngs. You hear about maybe Williams-Holmes border. And then you hear about Maynard. (laughs) Valley, did he ever... Talk about what it meant to be part of that group, that part, that narrative about being involved with those those heavyweights, those giants here in, in, in Atlanta.
1: Even though he had a very close relationship with everyone that you mentioned, um, the Dobbs and the King family uh, were very, very close. Uh, they, they lived across the street from each other, and Maynard's Aunt June was a very good friend of Martin Luther King, whom mm-hmm. she called M.L., both of their fathers were very involved in the, in the civil rights movement. Um, but Maynard never talked to me about, you know, um, uh, I've got to do this because uh, I want to be uh, the greatest uh, freedom fighter or mm-hmm. whatever. It was never about that. It was him always just trying to do what was right which was his ministerial background mm-hmm. just do the right thing if you need someone that needs help help them if you need someone that needs uplifting you know inspire them lift them up so um his i think his need or his desire to Excel was not for personal gain, mm-hmm. but for his people. He was what they called the last of the, the race men. Mm-hmm. You remember that that saying about remember race men? Mm-hmm. You know, that talked about uh, black men who fought for their race, who put things, uh, uh, who, who would put very little ahead of race other than their families, of course. And so he was a race man. Um, some of the other things that he had in common with Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther was one of his... Uh, role model, so Mm -hmm. to speak. But um, they had several things in common. Maynard didn't know Martin Luther King Jr. that well, but Mm -hmm. he was very familiar with the family. I knew Daddy King. We were Mm -hmm. very close with Daddy King and whatnot. But the things that Maynard and Martin Luther King shared were things like they both believed in nonviolence. And as you know, Dr. King, that was basically what he preached on. And even though Maynard was very confrontational, (laughs) he believed that politics was the best available, nonviolent means of changing how we live. And both of them were transformative figures. Mm -hmm. Dr. King was transformative in his civil rights approach, using the tactics of Mm nonviolence and civil disobedience meaning demonstrations, boycotts, etc. Maynard was transforming in the terms of he changed that negative perception of black politics to the fact that black men, black people can Mm -hmm. lead, you know. Uh, The politics of inclusion, Martin Luther King spoke about that uh, very much. And Maynard obviously believed in that very much, bringing people to the decision-making table, people of all races, Mm -hmm. gender, and beliefs. And Maynard felt we're we're all in this boat together, so we might as well work together and appreciate what what each of us has Mm -hmm. to bring to the table through our differences. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King, Jr., it's from a book that that, uh, Coretta Scott King uh, put together with some of his writings— And the one most precious quote that I constantly repeat is following, and it's about inclusion. Mm -hmm. All men are interdependent. Every nation is an heir of a vast treasury of ideas and labor to which both the living and the dead of all nations have contributed. When we arise in the morning, we go into the bathroom where we reach out for a sponge, which is provided for us by a Pacific Islander. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We reach for soap that is created for us by a European. Then at the table, we drink coffee, which is provided for us by a South American, or tea provided by a Chinese, or cocoa. Mm-hmm. provided by a West Indian. Before we leave for our jobs, we are already beholden to more than half the world. Yeah. End quote. I love yeah. that. Because it just tells you so much how interdependent we mm-hmm. are on each other. And we've got to start using that interdependence in a positive way. Both men didn't want to take anybody away from the table. They're, they're goal was to bring people to, to the together. table and, and and not take anybody away. The, the important thing for both of them was that when you talk about that table of inclusion, mm-hmm. you don't, the most important thing is that you remember to include those who were already included and then bring some new tables to the chair. You don't, you don't kick out a few that are already there to bring in a few others. Everybody that was there stays at the table. It's important that they still be included. And then you bring in the additional chairs, the additional voices, the additional ideas. So they, the businesses and the communities were all transformed by this mm-hmm. politics of inclusion. You could look at the um, neighborhood planning unit. Sure. That's a result of inclusive politics. You know, the communities were allowed to get together for themselves to determine, you know, their future in terms mm-hmm. of what they wanted and what kind of community they wanted. Now, nobody, I don't want to run out of time, but I want to make one other no, thing. go ahead. Okay, affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Now, affirmative action was one means that Dr. King urged to eliminate the exclusion of minorities, uh, well, to eliminate the exclusion that minorities had suffered, Sure. I should say. Uh, He said, social peace must stem from economic justice. And he urged the SCLC to use new tactics to compel, quote-unquote, unwilling authorities, (laughs) end quote, to yield to the mandates of justice. And that's exactly what Maynard's joint ventures were doing at the airport. He mandated that 25% of the airport contracts must include minority and female-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. Now, before that, before Maynard was mayor, less than one-half of 1% of contracts went to minorities and to women. That's Mm -hmm. 0.05%, you know, but obviously he changed that. Well, actually, when, when the... Community, the business community, and the construction community realized that he was serious about this, and uh, decided to get on board. Um, we got the airport built, but he mm-hmm. he told them he said we are not going to build this airport without minority participation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He
1: said weeds will grow on that tarmac before we build that airport without minority participation. Now, people used to talk about how Maynard could move mountains. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you a quick little story. They told Maynard when he said, "Well, what's happening on the on the airport?" Because the plans had been on the previous mayor's desk for several years, and they had been told, or he had been told, the previous mayor that they couldn't build the airport on the existing site because Highway Interstate eighty five ran through a little part of the land that would be needed. Mm-hmm. So they all just said, "Well, we can't do it because Highway eighty five is running, you know, on part of the." So. When Maynard said, well, what's happening on the airport? They said, well, Mr. Mayor, we can't do it because they... He said, what? He said, well, then change the highway then. Move the highway. <laughs> yeah, there's no problem. Yeah, you know, and I'm sure that they all looked at him and said, well, I'm sure the stress of being the first black mayor is finally starting to get to you. <laughs> you know? It's like... The man want to move the highway. <laughs> hello, he wanted to move the highway. But guess what? Maynard got on the phone and met with the secretary of transportation, met with the governor and everybody who was involved in that, in that venue. And... Lo and behold, he got that highway moved. Now, May- Maynard, people
2: talk about how Maynard can move
1: mountains. Well, I don't know about mountains, <laughs> but I know he can definitely move highways.
2: Oh, you know, Valerie, you all, uh, you married in 1977. He passed in, in 2003. And, and at, at his funeral, Mrs. King, your friend, Coretta Scott King said, quote, history will show that Maynard Jackson was one of the greatest American mayors ever. And as we wrap up, when you hear that, this is the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. at your beloved Maynard's funeral, and she says those words.
1: I agree. And I believe that I agree because we both saw our husband in similar roles. They made great sacrifices for this city and this country, and even Maynard beyond Atlanta was an impact way beyond Atlanta, you know, through all of this... Uh, country people would mayors would be calling him. How do I do this? How do I do that? He served uh, uh, on many federal boards, and three presidents eulogized him: Carter, mm-hmm. Clinton, and and uh, Bush. So we had special men in our lives, and they made a lot of sacrifices. But I know Maynard never sacrificed the family, though, because mm-hmm. every evening, unless he was out of town, he was at that dinner table at six thirty, and we always sang the grace.
2: And the plates were provided. (laughs) And I made his plate right. Valerie Jackson, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Rose. A conversation from our ATL 68 series with Valerie Jackson talking about husband Maynard. When we come back, the making of Maynard, the documentary. But first, you know, that idea of renaming Atlanta's airport was actually kind of sparked during the funeral. And, of course, Reverend Jesse Jackson when he delivered the benediction, he sort of presented the idea.
3: I've heard if you walk like a duck, talk like a duck, you must be a duck. So if it is true that Maynard conceived the new airport and got the highway redirected for the new airport and worked with the Secretary of Transportation to get the money for the new airport, it should be named after Maynard the new airport.
2: And this special edition of Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. How do you capture the life, legacy, and perhaps maybe a personal side of Maynard Jackson? Well, the documentary Maynard, directed by award-winning Sam Pollard, probably left out a lot because there was a lot. But it does provide some insight.
4: Maynard uh, came back from law school and out of the blue, he decided to run against Herman Talmadge. Let me make this crystal clear. My candidacy is not a candidacy for one section of the people. It is not a candidacy to represent only one group. My candidacy stands for unity in the state of Georgia.
1: He borrows $3,000, runs against Herman Talmadge in Georgia, and then he calls me. After he did that, I had to go back to work. We had just bought a house. We had a baby. We had no savings and my husband didn't have a job. That
2: was my introduction to politics. Was I upset? But well, what do you think? <laughs> In that excerpt, we heard Lonnie King, co-founder of the Atlanta Student Movement. Well, that was back in 1960 when he started that. And also we heard from Bunny Jackson Ransom. Now, Maynard Jackson's family was the driving force behind Maynard, and he's already won some awards this year. But joining me now in studio to talk about this is Maynard Jackson III, son of Maynard Jackson, and wife, Wendy Jackson, producers. Thank you all so much for coming in and taking the time. Thank you for having us. So, listen, there was a lot. There's a lot to Maynard Jackson. And I remember on this program, I think last year, you all were still making sure or trying to decide what would go in, what would not go in, what couldn't make it. Right. Some folks was in it, some folks wasn't, some folks mad. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't in the documentary. <laughs> How challenging was it to decide what to put in this documentary?
0: Um, you know, documentaries follow any any other line of storytelling. There's an act one, there's an act two, mm-hmm. there's an act three. And you always have to... Um, find what the inciting incident is in act one to to propel you forward to tell the story and um, we did 43 interviews 17 persons actually made the final cut so that means there's a lot on the floor um but the story kind of unfolded itself. Mm-hmm. You know, you have um, Sam would ask lead-in questions, then he would turn to myself and Maynard and say, "You know, do you have any additional questions?" And based on how those questions were answered, you know, you would you would construct a story. Some things would take you off into mm-hmm. uh, subplots, but you know, the 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 challenge with Maynard is that. When you're trying to encapsulate 65 years of a purpose-driven life, a daily purpose-driven life, there's not enough hard drive or tape to be able to do that without really making it um, an episodic series.
2: Maynard, how challenging was it for you, too? Because I know you have people saying, hey, man, make sure I get in it. Make sure you you know, don't put me on a cutting room floor.
4: Oh, man. Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having us. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, everything involved with making the Maynard documentary, I was prepared for mentally because I knew all of that came with it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just a matter of just fleshing it out. And,
2: what, uh, were there things that you wanted, that you all want to make sure you got in? Because we always hear about Maynard when he's elected as mayor, you know. Mm-hmm. But also in this documentary, we get a little bit more of insight to before that. You know, right. and, and his drive and, and getting into politics. Well, although, although uh,
0: people say it's a, a family-made um, documentary, there's a lot to any public figure that you can Google. Mm-hmm. Um, you can research through uh, archival footage. You can research, study. But we wanted you to get to know the man. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted you to know that life happened to him, too. You know, um, from the time he was, you know, the fact that he went into college at 14 and graduated mm-hmm. um, at 18, the mere fact that there were six children, father dies early, leaving a mom to raise six kids by herself, mm-hmm. and she's still in pursuit of her her Ph.D. at the time. Um, there, are, there are so many opportunities for him to make bad decisions, and I'm not to say that he was infallible, but what I am saying is that he was always driven mm-hmm. um, by his love for family, his commitment to service, uh, to do the right thing. So we wanted you to get to know
2: Maynard. And Maynard, this has been in the works for a while. What challenges did you run into? I mean, you all were waiting, waiting for the right director. Why Sam Pollard?
4: Oh, that <laughs> that was just a natural fit. Yeah. You know, Um You know, you guys were talking about uh, the challenges and that being, I think, one of the biggest ones being um, deciding what will be in it and Mm -hmm. the approach of, um, you know, what kind of story to tell. So we settled in on wanting to tell a more personal story, Mm -hmm. as Wendy said, to kind of piggyback um, off her that you can Google and learn a lot of things. And, you know, looking back, we left a lot, um, like she said, on the cutting room floor,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and also a lot of just kind of maybe pertinent information, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And it's always, you know, twenty twenty, and you, you you'll say, "Oh, should I have done this different?" Well, maybe so, but, but you know, at the end of the day, but you you're know, happy with the outcome. It's, right? it's a great, it's a great. film. you're happy with the outcome. Really, very yeah, happy, yeah, exactly.
2: Very happy with the outcome. You know. Did you get any, and I know Sam Pollard is very meticulous. Did y'all have a little bit of, now Sam, I want to do this? And Sam's like, no. Oh, Sam and I went back and forth.
4: Yeah, no, he worked with What us.
2: was that like? Mm. No, Sam you and shoulda, I went back and forth. You should have put that on video.
0: Mm.
4: <laughs> he's you know, really become an uncle. Like, he, he, he,
0: he, he's the uncle don't worry, be happy. Here. But, uh, you know, there were times, I'll, I'll give you an example. So we went back and forth on name keys. And... um you know, it's just like, you know, some people don't, you know, some people may not remember who such and such was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here I am <laughs> going. This is my first documentary. This is probably his 60th or 70th. Not just that. He's a professor at NYU. You work with and Spike Lee. It Well, not just work with Spike Lee. He's been an oh, editor. Yeah. And here you so come telling him what to do. Here I come <laughs> on my white horse telling him what to do. Well, I think what came out of that was, um, Sam gave us enough flexibility. He didn't give us enough rope to hang ourselves. He never told us what to do. Mm-hmm. He he would always say if this if there was a challenge, you know, Wendy here are your options. We can do this, this, and this. But if I were you, I would consider X. Mm-hmm. And some, and most of the time we went with X. And sometimes, you know, there were some things I wanted to do after we had locked. Um, when you lock a film, that means you're not you're finished with editing it. And I wanted to go back in and and do some things. And he was like, Nope, we're not going to unlock this film. Mm-hmm. We're not going to unlock this film. But I was like, But Sam, I wanted to do this, 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 and. It would be another week worth of editing, but another week of editing is also, you know, about ten grand.
2: Yeah, it's money. Yeah. You all mentioned there were forty three interviews. Seventeen made them. Was there someone that you wanted to get or an interview you wanted to get that you didn't that you can tell me about?
4: Oh yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, Who's that? First comes to mind is uh, Julian Bond.
2: Oh yeah.
0: yeah. You know when he he passed. Passed away. Right. Julian Bond. um, You know, I to be honest with you, Bill Campbell gave a great interview.
2: Yeah, former mayor of Atlanta. Former mayor of Atlanta,
0: Bill Campbell gave an exceptional um, interview. Uh, There were some things um, for Reverend Jesse Jackson that I, you know, I wish we just had more time. You know, Sam and I, here's another thing we kind of butted heads. There was a two minutes and 32 seconds excerpt with Ambassador Young that I felt should have remained in there. You cannot edit ch- it Young. To sne- we Under- tried to sneak
4: it back in, too. <laughs> and
0: and he, he, here, here's in, in, in understanding. In, by the way, I'm getting my MFA in screenwriting right now from University of Georgia. Yeah. So it's kind of like I was getting my MFA with Sam, and now I'm in school, and now I understand stand why he said all the things that he said. Oh. So um, – there's I,
4: another documentary on the cutting room floor There's history. another
0: documentary. Part, we did yeah. we did donate the footage to the Atlanta History Center, oh. um, so people can research more archival, you know, years to come to to talk to the people that knew him best.
2: If someone were to ask, so with this documentary, am I going to learn more about the personal side, the political side, a little bit of both, you
4: know? Yeah, a little bit, a little of both, a lot of both.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, what about you? We
4: concentrated on the personal side so that you can, I mean, just from my, my thinking is um, we wanted to. Do, well, I wanted people to um, learn about, you know, what created the man, what, you know, mm-hmm. your life kind of forms you and, you know, you know, you kind of grow through um, what life's, what life brings you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, life brought him a lot of interesting things and he was crafted, you know, by his um, his father, his grandfather, his mm-hmm. mother, um, and, you know, just this um, great community, you know, family and community. And so we wanted to really show that.
2: Do you feel like you did, Maynard? Definitely. Yeah. Wendy, yes. what about you? You feel like
0: you did? D- totally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Maynard was loyal, mm-hmm. truly a um, family first kind of man. Everyone has said that family first everything that he did was always with his family in mind um he you know unapologetically a race man mm-hmm. he felt like he someone needed to talk for um african american people people was women but i we wanted you to it's just so I, I always feel you know you can google so yeah. much about public figures but you really need to know what made them tick. Like uh, there's an excerpt where um, uh, his first wife, Bunny Jackson Ransom, talks about his love for ice cream. And they mm. go back and forth with this ice cream and how the ice cream ends up on the ceiling. <laughs> um, or he,
2: Do we know how to ice cream?
0: <laughs> you know, they're, they're He was like, I thought you told me to take it away from him. He's like, leave my ice cream. So, you know, he he had his he had his challenges as well.
2: You know. As we wrap up, Maynard, I wanna ask you, you know, for you to tell me if you your dad, how do you describe Maynard? Daddy, your pop.
4: Oh wow. Um so gives great bear hugs. Yeah. <laughs> it's the guy that's full of love and um you know, always always a smile for everyone, always willing to um stop. And talk to someone. and
2: That is true. That is very mm-hmm. true. There are so many photos, and I know I was teasing you before we came on air, uh, you and, the, and your dad's first administration. And you're so little. You got this little afro, you and your, your siblings. You just, you're just looking everywhere. You, you and just my afro, take, my banana. Yeah, just kind of taking it in like, okay. Just peeking through. They're taking pictures of dad. Legs. <laughs> With all the footage that you donated, you said you donated to the Atlanta History Center? Yes. And so... You've got some awards, some pretty praises for. We did. Yeah.
0: We we won um, the Atlanta Film Festival, uh, New Voices, which is out of of uh, uh, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, we yes,
4: we beat Point of Interest. We beat RBG for that
2: uh Oh We Ruth better. Ruth, Bader Ginsburg, Ruth, Bader Ginsburg, Ruth. Ginsburg, <laughs> sending me emails.
0: <laughs> we love you, Ruth, but we had we, to beat you the hometown. We do, and, 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 and we That's actually love the the producers in the studio. Oh god, and uh, they're they're getting everything
4: that. else anyway. So
2: you know. <laughs> right, they've just been nominated for a producers
0: guild award. um But no, we did. We've it, it was a, a a wonderful journey. I will. I have to be. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say we have to thank not just Sam, but our our director Mm -hmm. of photography. I think our footage is beautiful. Henry Audubonijo, Daphne McWilliams, Jason Orr, Donald Jarman, Winsome Sinclair, Dolly Turner, Autumn Bailey Ford, Carl Mm -hmm. Carter. Um, Our editor, you know, this is a Georgia-based production. Mm -hmm. Um, All three persons were from New York. Wow. but. Um, we're we're proud that this was a homegrown project and
4: she was about to mention our editor was uh, Jeff Cooper. Yes uh, as well. Got to give him a Atlanta shout. native
2: Jeff Cooper. Uh, a lot of people. Wendy Maynard III, thank you both for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being thank part you. of this special. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so so much. for having us. In a little tent. Oh and just like the river I've been running ever since. It's been a long Always great to revisit those conversations, the legacy of Maynard Jackson. We've got some good emails from you all. Thank you so much for your lovely notes. That's it for this edition of Closer Look on uh, the day Atlanta elects its new mayor. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any day's today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And remember, closer look weeknights at seven p.m. And a programming note tonight: following this edition of Closer Look, WABE's election special begins at eight p.m. Join me, Dennis O'Hare, our entire WABE politics team, and more. That's tonight, starting at eight. Stay tuned to ninety point one WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. And I
0: go down Somebody keep telling me don't hang around It's been a long,
2: a long time coming But I know a change's gonna come Oh, yes it will Help me please But he winds up